0: We who know Christ as Savior have so much to look forward to, don't we? Would you please turn in your Bible to Psalm 24 for our study today? Psalms 22, 23, and 24 form a trilogy of sorts. Each, of course, is distinctive in its messianic tone, and yet together they form something of an outline of Messiah's work. In Psalm 22, we have his past work, dying and rising again. In Psalm 23, his present work, that of leading his people. In Psalm 24, his future work, that of reigning as sovereign. In Psalm 22, we have his work as prophet. Psalm 23, his work as priest. Psalm 24, his work as the king. In Psalm 22, we see the Savior's cross. In Psalm 23, we see the shepherd's crook. And in Psalm 24, the sovereign's crown. And it is Psalm 24 that we look at today. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord. And who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob, or perhaps even like Jacob. and historical background, which centers most probably upon the Ark of the Covenant. You may remember from Exodus chapter 25 that the Ark of the Covenant was the focal point of the whole tabernacle that God ordered the Israelites to build. The Ark of the Covenant was a box made of acacia wood that was overlaid with pure gold. It was a box three feet nine inches By two feet, three inches. By two feet, three inches. The top or the lid of the box was made of pure gold. And on the ends beaten out of that gold lid were two seraphim. With their wings spread out and with their faces looking down upon the top of the box, which was called the mercy seat. Within the box were to be placed certain contents... The two tablets of the law of Moses were there. The rod that Aaron used, which budded. And a pot of manna, that miracle food that God provided for his people in their wilderness journey. But as too often happens, that which God gave to represent him to the people became the object of worship itself. Their faith began to be placed in this relic. Rather than in the Lord, we see this, for example, in First Samuel chapters three and four, when the Israelites, after they had gotten into the land, got into a war with the Philistines and were beaten badly. And they said, "We need to get the Ark of the Lord and bring it down," thinking that that Ark had some kind of power. They were rather superstitious about it, and so they brought the Ark down to Shiloh, or from Shiloh, to the battle. But the ark was taken from them by the Philistines. The Israelites were beaten back, and they got their hands on this religious object. And yet God honored that object, and you may recall the story, some of it rather humorous, in fact, about how God plagued the Philistines because they had in their possession this ark of the covenant. Finally, the Philistines decided the best thing they could do with it was to get it back to the Israelites, Because it caused nothing but problems for them. And so they arranged that. And the ark ended up in the house of Abinadab, according to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. And there it was kept for many years, until the days of David when he reigned as king. And it was in his heart that he might return or take the ark of the covenant from where it had rested for those years in the house of Abinadab up to the city of Jerusalem, which was now to be the capital city of his United Kingdom. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and I'd like for you to look at that with me, because I think this was probably the occasion that caused the writing of Psalm 24. Second Samuel chapter 6, and we look in verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom. That's the same one as Abinadab. And all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling, And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. And you can go on and read about how the celebration occurred as the ark arrived at the city, the city walls. Now, if you think about the language of Psalm 24, you can almost see the procession arriving there, and the people on the walls perhaps shouting out, Who is the King of Glory? And those bringing the ark saying, The Lord of hosts, he is the King of Glory. Quite a a dynamic and dramatic moment as the Ark of God arrived in the city of Jerusalem. But Psalm 24 has also a prophetic significance beyond David's day. We want to talk about that, at least in part, this morning, as we think about the King of Glory. Who is the King of Glory? The answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the victorious King of Glory. And in Psalm 24, we have three works of the King of Glory. First, we see the King of Glory is the Creator, verses 1 and 2. His is the work of creation. His title deed of ownership embraces what is called here the world and the earth. The earth refers to the vastness of the created planet and all that it contains, taking into account its resources of water and fuels and minerals and all of the essential elements, the riches of its precious gems and metals, the varieties of its plant and animal life, its sea creatures, its insects, Everything. That could be a part of the earth is embraced here in the first part of verse 1 as belonging to him. But also included is the world and those who dwell in it. The word world refers to the civilized, inhabited parts of the planet. With all of the peoples that dwell anywhere on the globe that make up a part of its population. This verse says that the king of glory is the owner of all. All of the earth and all of its peoples belong to him. Before I go any further, there are two observations that I would make regarding this. Number one, man is a steward of what belongs to God. We have deeds that say a certain piece of ground might belong to us or we may have registration titles to certain pieces of the planet, or certain gems, or a certain amount of gold or silver. But the fact is that when we die, that belongs to somebody else. And when they die, it belongs to somebody else. The ultimate owner of all things is the Lord. However you look at it, a person, a man or a woman, is but a steward. And that's all that we are. We have it for a period of time to use it, and then we pass it on to others. We are stewards, but we are stewards. I don't know that I've ever preached a message on our responsibility as God's creation for this, to be good stewards of the resources of this planet. I'm not sure that's worth a whole message. Maybe it would be in the right context. But the fact is that we are to be good stewards of the resources that God has put into this planet. We are to remember that the environment as it is, is given to us, and that we ought not to pollute it. And yet we are very well known for that, especially in our, our society, where we have so much throwaway, and we have so much excess. We are stewards of that which belongs to God. But then there is a second observation I would make, and that is that every person, every person has the brand of the eternal, infinite God upon him. That gives value to all of life. However early that life be in the womb, however old that life be in some home or hospital, however far off that life may be from what we call civilization, Every life has value because it has the brand of God upon it. The world is the Lord's and all of those who dwell in it. That has a lot of practical application to some of the issues that we're facing today. We have to go on. I want you to notice that his ownership of all is based upon his rights as the Creator For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It is God who caused the dry land and the water to be separated and who set the boundaries for them in the laws of nature that he established. Because he is the creator of all that is, he is the owner of it. It is his by right of creation. And so we see that the king of glory is the creator, and he is to be worshipped. As the creator. He has not created himself, nor is he in creation in the sense of pantheism or the new age theology, if I can use that term. Philosophy is a better word. He is separate from the creation, but he brought it into existence. And because he is its creator, it all belongs to him ultimately. And we are stewards of the material world in which we live. And we ourselves have the brand of the eternal God upon us in our spirit. A second work that I see in Psalm 2 of the King of Glory is that of salvation. The King of Glory is the Savior. This great creator that is described in verses 1 and 2 is also holy He dwells in his holy place, according to verse 3. And the question is asked, who is qualified to come into his presence? Now, as David penned these words, he may have had in mind Uzziah, or rather Uzzah. Uzzah. For you will recall that just previous to the bringing of the ark that we read about in 2 Samuel 6, There was another attempt on David's part to bring the ark, which resulted in disaster. The first time, there was not care taken as to how the ark was to be transported. And one, Uzzah, was involved in bringing the ark on a cart. And at one point, he thought the ark was going to fall off the cart, and he reached up and touched that holy object, and God struck him dead on the spot. Now, it may be that that incident was in David's mind as he asked the question, Who is qualified to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in this holy place? That means, who can stand there without being ashamed? Who can stand there without being embarrassed? Without being afraid? Who is acceptable to God? That's the question. Well, the response is very clear. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, the only one who is acceptable to come into the presence of this holy creator is one who is morally free of sin. I do not take these phrases in verse 4 to be a complete catalog of the qualities, but these are suggestions of the virtues that represents sinfulness, or sinlessness, rather. Sinlessness. Who is able to stand before the great Creator unashamed? The answer is, only one who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, one who externally is without fault. He has clean hands. Outwardly, there's the virtue of deeds that are good, and not sinful. His hands have not been fouled by some sinful enterprise. He has clean hands. But more than that, he has a pure heart. Here we go inside, internally. Not the virtue of the deeds, but the virtue of the Spirit. Not only must the hands be unpolluted, but the heart must not be fouled by sin. If one would stand before the holy creator God and be accepted of him he explains further what he means by a pure heart in verse 4 is someone who takes no delight in what is false someone who has complete sincerity about him nor does he depreciate what is holy he is not sworn deceitfully He has complete reverence for the name of God and the things of God. Something that Uzzah failed to demonstrate when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. And so who may stand before this God? Only one who is without sin. And I submit to you that there is only one who is so qualified to stand before God and be accepted of him. And that is this King of Glory, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who may stand before God and be accepted, and he has been. For he was raised from the dead, he ascended back to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father there, proving that he has been fully accepted by the great Creator God, the one who is holy in his dwelling place. Jesus Christ, the God man, has been accepted by God. That's wonderful, but it leaves us in a rather bleak position, except for the wonderful truth of the gospel. The good news of God is that Jesus Christ lives and is in heaven today that he might save completely and cleanse every sinner who comes to Him in faith. All of the disqualifying impurities about us in deed and in heart can be removed by Jesus Christ, the King of glory, who is the Savior. God who is holy Demanded in his holiness that a price for our sin be exacted. And that price was exacted upon Jesus at the cross, wasn't it? When he died there, he died as a substitute in the place of sinners. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for you and for me. So that God's holiness is satisfied. And when we trust in the Savior, then we are found acceptable to God because we are identified with the one who is pure and holy and righteous and able to stand in the presence of the Lord. Turn over to the New Testament with me, to the book of Romans, the third chapter. Let's read some scripture that undergirds what I've just said. The main part of the first three chapters of Romans is devoted to proving that all have sinned and that there is no one who is righteous in the eyes of God. But in verse 21, it says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, stop to think about that for a moment. Paul is not just saying that God Himself is righteous as an attribute, but He is saying that God gives the kind of righteousness that He demands of people who would stand before Him, He makes it available to sinners. Who can stand before God? Only one who is sinless. Only one who is righteous. God then gives that righteousness to the sinner who believes. Going down to verse 24. Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This righteousness is not a righteousness that we earn by even our religious works, the meritorious deeds that we think we do. No. This righteousness comes as a gift from God. It comes to us because of what Jesus did. Verse 25, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. In other words, the blood of Jesus satisfies the holiness of God. He goes on to say, This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. On the one hand, God is just and God is holy and he demands retribution for sin. On the other hand, God loves the sinner. How can God save the sinner from his just retribution? By what he's done through Jesus Christ in paying the price on the behalf of the sinner. So that when the sinner believes on the Savior, all of his sin, all of his impurity is washed away and wiped away from the record, and God gives to the sinner perfect righteousness. And unites him to Jesus Christ. So that when God sees that individual from that point on, he sees him in Christ. He sees him as perfect as Jesus himself is perfect. What a wonderful standing God gives by justification. And that's what Paul talks about in the next chapter, 2 of Romans, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says... Therefore, having been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Who is it that can stand in the presence of the Holy God, the Creator, the one who has been saved? By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has believed on the Savior who died and rose again 2,000 years ago. The one whose sins have therefore been washed away and who has received the righteousness that comes from God as a gift. The one who has identified with Jesus Christ, that one can stand before the God of the universe and be unashamed. Because he stands there in the righteousness of Christ, not his own righteousness. The King of glory is the Savior. And the second work that I believe is brought to our attention in this Psalm 24 is that of salvation. The wonderful salvation that the King of glory has provided for all of those who seek him in faith. But let's go on to the third part of the psalm where we see a third work of the king of glory. The king of glory is the creator. The king of glory is the savior. And now we see that the king of glory is also the ruler. Again, I invite you to think back to that procession in David's day. When the ark arrived to the gates of Jerusalem, David himself, the king, "...in the common clothing of a servant, coming to the gates of the city, bringing that ark, and saying, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors." What does he mean by that? Well, remember now, he's a poet. He's speaking in a poet's language. In the first place, these doors of the fortress city of Jerusalem are ancient doors." These doors have seen King Melchizedek enter through them, who was the king of Salem, this very city, in the days of Abraham, a thousand years before this. So these are old doors, ancient gates. They have seen many royal kings come through them. But now there is one who is coming in such majesty... That they have to be lifted up, jack up those gates, broaden them, open them up because the king of glory is entering in. That's his point. God himself is entering the city in this ark that represents his presence. Gates have to be enlarged to accommodate such majesty as his, this one who is the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of the armies, one of the most glorious of all of the New Te- Old Testament names for the Lord. He comes to rule over his people, he comes to dwell in the city of Jerusalem, that place that he has chosen out of all of the earth. But think ahead with me as well. Think ahead prophetically with me to that day when our Lord, the King of Glory, will yet again return to the city of Jerusalem. To do that, I would like you to turn to the book of the Revelation at the end of the New Testament. And to the fifth chapter where we have a scene in heaven, not upon the earth, but in heaven. This is where the action starts. Chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now the one who is seen upon the throne here is God. God the Father. He has in his hand a book or a scroll with seven seals on it. And John says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? You can almost hear the echo of Psalm 24. Who may stand in the presence of the Holy One? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep, says John, weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all of the earth. There is some symbolic use of language, obviously, in verse 6. But John, as he sees this scene, sees a lamb that has been slain. Not just one that has died, but one that has actually been sacrificed, is the point. And that lamb is identified as also the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the root of David, or the king of glory, Jesus Christ. And we see that he came and he took it, the scroll, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And after taking that scroll, he begins to open it. And the book goes on to record what happens when the first seal is opened and the second seal, and the third, and so on. And it leads to the whole book of the Revelation, which is a record, a prophetic record, events that are yet to come, of the pouring out of God's judgment upon the Christ-rejecting earth. The movement begins with the Lamb taking this scroll, which represents, by the way, his, his title deed, that he is the creator and he owns the earth. And he has also, because of that, the right to rule it. And so he begins to pour out judgment upon those who reject his rule. Let's skip ahead in the book to Revelation chapter 16, where we come to one glimpse of the culmination of this judgment. Judgment leads ultimately to a gathering of the armies of the nations for battle against the Lord. They're led by Antichrist. Chapter 16 of Revelation, beginning in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs Which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Verse 16. And they gathered them together in the place which in Hebrew is called har Armageddon. The place of Megiddo. The great valley of Esdralon in the land of Israel. What is described here and is described in other places as well is the gathering of the armies of the world for battle. As they gather for battle, their attention is focused suddenly and dramatically to the skies. For there appears in the skies a sign of the Son of Man and suddenly they see Him Coming down out of heaven upon a white stallion. And his name emblazoned across his chest on a ribbon. And with him, this Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies, the armies of the heavens behind him. And there is a clashing of these two armies. And the defeat of the forces of the world of Antichrist... I'm summarizing what happens in chapter 19. And then, following that, our Lord will return to the city of Jerusalem. And I'd like to go to the Old Testament for a picture of this, to the book of Zechariah. If you have trouble finding it, just go to Matthew and start backing up and you'll get there fairly quickly. The book of Zechariah, chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming, for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, says the writer. A day is coming, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle, a day that I briefly described to you a moment ago. And it says, "...in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the east or the front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley." So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. He describes the change of the topography in Jerusalem when Jesus' feet touched that mountain. Verse 9 goes on to say, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, in his name the only one. Verse 16, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem... "...will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate the Feast of Booths." In other words, some of the Old Testament feasts are going to be reestablished during his reign upon the earth as a memorial to his victory. Now just briefly, we have surveyed some of the scriptures that cause us to think ahead. Psalm 24 causes us to think back to that time when the ark was brought to the city of Jerusalem... But that is not the end of that psalm. It looks ahead when the King of Glory will rule on the earth. When he will return and subdue his enemies. And will come victoriously to that city and once more. The question will be asked. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord of hosts. Strong and mighty in battle. He is the King of Glory. Open up you gates. Broaden yourselves, everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. And on that day yet to come, he will enter Jerusalem and reign over the earth. And all of the earth will come to worship the King. The one who will rule is the same as the one who created and who saves. He is Jesus Christ, the King of glory. As he will one day enter Jerusalem, he this day would enter your life. The alternative is to remain at war with him and to someday receive the punishment that is meted out to all of those who refuse him. He would enter your life. But if he would enter your life, he must enter not only as your acknowledged creator and your savior but he must enter your life as your sovereign too. For when you invite him into your life, no area of life can be knowingly withheld from his rule. You must receive him as the victorious one who has conquered you and to whom you now submit yourself. But please... Understand that he does this not to subjugate you. He conquers you not to enslave you. He conquers you that he might lift you to reign with him on his throne of glory. No one ever opens his heart to receive this Savior sovereign to become the loser. But there is only gain, an eternal gain, to receive Him. What a privilege to give yourself to the King, the King of glory, and to be able to look into His face and know that He is your Creator and your Savior and the Sovereign, the Lord of your life. Let's pray together. wherever you be today and your spiritual need how would you respond to the message this morning at least in the closing part I've aimed it directly toward those who need to receive Christ understand that rejecting him is not a game it's very serious business day, He comes to the gate, as it were, of your heart, desiring to enter in. Will you receive Him as your conqueror? Submit yourself to Him in trust and in faith? You say, I would like to do that. I would like to talk to somebody about it. I'm not sure what it all entails as you fill out your registration form a little later, I invite you to check that part of it that says, I would like to talk with someone. And we'll have someone be in touch with you to talk with you personally to answer any questions you may have. But the fact is you need not wait till then for even where you're seated, if you understand the message, you can receive it. Lord Jesus, King of glory, we worship you. We acknowledge you. You are the Creator. You are the Savior. You are the Sovereign. We rejoice in your victory, a victory that you invite us to share when we trust you. Hallelujah. Amen.